Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest and bashiest radio station. I'm your host, Ash Sarka at IO Caesar, if you're into that kind of thing. And today I'm joined by Abby Wilkinson and Michael Segalov at Abby Wilkinson at Mike Segalov, respectively. Journalists, <laughs> commentators, all-round good eggs. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So today we're talking about the outcomes from the Conservative Party conference, plus a whole lot more besides. So, big thing. Theresa May, who largely steered clear of big policy announcements over the summer, made clear her commitment to a hard Brexit, i.e. losing access to the single market in favour of tightening restrictions on immigration. Jeremy Hunt expressed his preference for giving foreign doctors the boot once he can find 1,500 medics a year who haven't heard of him. And Boris Johnson went on some <laughs> rambling, <laughs> absurd um, diatribe which involved soft power, gunboats, Jeremy Clarkson. Um, <laughs> when finding quotes that I wanted to respond to for today's show, I struggled to find a complete sentence that um, didn't kind of meander and interrupt itself in quite a Trump-like fashion. But um, yeah, we don't we don't have time to cover that today, unfortunately. So. It's quite tempting to see the last week's developments as a decisive break with the politics of New Labour and the Conservative Party as it existed under David Cameron. And we should certainly examine closely today the language of economic and social uplift. But we can't act like the hardline xeno-racist policies like forcing businesses to declare how many foreigners they employ or how many Mm -hmm. international students are in their institutions We can't pretend that these have come out of nowhere. In my opinion, this has been a political project with, what, a good 15 years Mm -hmm. um, in the making. But I think what's interesting here, right, to me, is that where uh, where the the hatred is now being faced, where the uh, demonisation is moving to. So you're right, for for decades we've had people being held in detention centres, we've had um, migrants and refugees coming over to this country and being left to drown in the sea. That's that's nothing new here. And actually, some of the most vulnerable people within that <clears throat> um, have always been uh, exploited and targeted. Like, look at international students, the way they're treated by uh, the state, the the whole kind of discourse around English language students when they were just people were kicked out of the country or unfairly on their courses. Um, and now we've got to the point where not only are those becoming, or those, um, <clears throat> I guess, those policies becoming ingrained, i.e., on the conference floor in the Conservative Party, we hear, you know, international students must be clamped down. If um, landlords are allowing people who don't have their papers to stay in their houses, they'll be arrested and imprisoned, criminalising once again. But actually, we've moved now to some of the more privileged people, inverted mm-hmm. commas, who come here, people who hold relative privilege, I suppose, um, relative positions of power, um, doctors, mm-hmm. uh, people who work in, in large corporations. Um, <clears throat> and that's not to say those people are, are not facing discrimination but we've seen this move away from not just hiding underneath the, the gaze of um, you know people who come here to, to, to aid our economy to be part of society we've moved away from them being acceptable faces too now and that's quite disconcerting yeah I, I think that um, the position of certain migrant workers as a despised other um, refugees as well as sort of the enemy the cause of problems a scapegoat is something that has been um, going on and building up for a while but I, I'd say that Theresa May's speech was really um, decisive sort of I'd, I'd say it's um, the dawning of post-liberal politics um, 
there's now no um, political party in the UK that opposes kind of interventionist economic policy, the government interfering in markets. There's no free market policy in the UK, um, party in the UK anymore. Um, I think the choices between, um, basically the choices about who's us, um, is it an inclusive us that includes migrant workers or is it this sort of nationalist, narrower, kind of white British xenophobic um, version of the collective? I mean, and so this is my point about that's a project that's got at least 15 years in the making. Mm. Um, what I think is dangerous about the way in which um, the Tory party conference has been covered in the media has been you've seen a lot of largely white lefty liberals saying, you know, now's the time for us all to be really frightened. Whereas lots of people of colour who I know personally or whose work that I've read been saying this for years and years and years. And one of the things that we can't do is associate a socially progressive um, politics with neoliberalism, right, with non-interventionist yep. market policies. We can't forget that David Cameron declared multiculturalism to have failed on the same day as the EDL's single yes. biggest mobilisation. So this idea of appealing to hardlines and a racism has a much longer yeah. lineage and I think um, that's one of the things that I want to throw out so coming to a specific policy which was the one that dominated the front pages which is the fact that businesses will be forced to disclose how many foreign workers or so-called foreign workers are in their employ how much of a surprise was it for you Michael and for you Abby to read about this I, I um it like like you said, it's um, it's a project. It's a, you know it's a tendency that's been building for a while. Um, it's under the Labour government. We we started um, detaining asylum seekers and all, all of all of these things. But I think like like Michael says, the move towards outright hostility towards even class privileged migrants, you know, doctors, people in kind of executive positions is new they've um i feel like they've extended the category of the enemy yeah but i think i think also for me there's a there was a turning point during the brexit campaign um like i, I think you the analysis uh, plays true a lot of the time but also like a lot of politicians certainly a lot of people in the media columnists um who aren't necessarily that well versed in uh, theory who just have jumped on to write whatever they think would be popular or politicians would say the same thing. I'm not saying you can be divorced those two. But I think there was a turning point when David Cameron got up and tried to make a positive case for immigration. When he got up during the Brexit, um, during the EU referendum campaign and actually tried to say, hold on a second, I know for decades we and for years I have tried to tell you that immigration is inherently bad for this country, inherently bad for you, inherently bad for society, but actually freedom of movement as it stands is really important. Um, and it fell on deaf ears and it's unsurprising to me and I think yep. to some extent in retrospect it would be unsurprising to him that that had happened. But I think that's what we're now seeing and I think that's the realisation we're seeing from some people. Um, I think it's realisation that they didn't quite understand what they were getting themselves into. Mm -hmm. It was this like, oh, immigration is a bit bad. Um, we can see there are problems, let's talk about it. And certainly I think for the centre-right of the Labour Party, that's what it's been. It's been a, and the centre, I guess, the, 
the less right wing of the Tory party. Um, those people who genuinely were looking for a populist policy. And now those who are some of those people rescinding those views or just kind of expressing alarm hadn't quite realised how far this would go. And I guess my analysis extends further because I'd say that until there's a whole reshuffle on reshuffle, I shouldn't say that today. And like <laughs> the re- reassessment, I should say, of like how we approach migration and appreciate that there's never going to be a progressive um uh, kind of the general popul- general population view on immigration until someone of the left and I would say now the Labour Party go out and make a positive case of immigration um, because you can't cut immigration we can't cut numbers mm-hmm. it doesn't work we, we know based on the stats and figures that if immigration is, is reduced from its current levels like the, aside from anything else and the social problems that come with that and the, like distinct inhumanity like the economy will suffer mm-hmm. um, and time and time again we've seen promises made um, by, by the Blair government under, under David Cameron and what will happen now under Theresa May and including under her tenure at the Home Office those promises were made to cut immigration and they were never delivered which has allowed that space on the right to open up because someone says I'm going to cut immigration, that's the problem. They get into power or they remain in power and they mm-hmm. realise that that's not a thing they can do and they appreciate that. There's a space opened up on the right for a zealous voice to come out and say, see, those London liberal elites, those establishment people, they don't listen to what we're saying. We need to cut immigration further. And I think one of the questions that um, I really want to unpick over the course of this next hour is, does blaming everything on immigrants and on a wider level um, the existence of cultural and racial others in Mm -hmm. our society, does this have a law of diminishing returns? Or is it a product, a political product, which creates its own market? But I'd like to read you a quote from Theresa May. And the reason why I want to read you this quote is because it is an analysis of what, what is immigration and what's it driven by that actually is shared by many on the left. And so I think when we're talking about a leftist response, we need to really highlight not just a leftist response, but an anti-racist one. So here's the quote. Um, We also value something else, the spirit of citizenship. That spirit, that means you respect the bonds and obligations that make how society work. That means a commitment to the men and women who live around you, who work for you, who buy the goods and services you sell. That spirit means recognising the social contract that says you train up young local people before you take on cheap labour from overseas. Um... I think what that does is um, it subtly um, blames migrant workers for the failures of kind of economically economic liberalism. I think um, I think it's quite a clever sleight of hand in that, of course, we need to train local people. Like we need to train, you know, pe- workers anywhere need to be trained to um, kind of fulfill, um, have you know do skilled work rather than have a sort of like race to the bottom economy where people are where they're just competing on who can work for the cheapest amount of money but it's um it's it's i mean i'm inclined to disagree actually i think like this is a great example of political sleight of hand but it's not quite the one you're describing um she's not blaming migrants for providing cheap labor she's blaming a you know, disinterested, cosmopolitan elite, bourgeois elite who are driven by nothing but a profit motive. Mm. And she's saying that that fundamentally undermines the social bonds that should tie society together, right? That's, I mean, not that far off from the language of the Occupy movement. Mm. So one of the things that's been, and rightly so, pointed out um, a lot over the last week is just how... 
how much of May and Rudd's language has drawn on the kind of tropes of populist fascism, but it actually draws on some of the tropes of populist leftism too, or a leftism which is abstracted from anti-racist politics. But, but I mean, I, I guess it's not it's not in line with the reality of the situation. Like, we know the facts, and the facts are that migrants moving to UK doesn't in, doesn't decrease the number of jobs available for people here. It actually just grows the economy, and it means there's more jobs available. It's not it's not true that um, the problem is we're not training up people, so migrants are taking the job. But she frames it. She frames it that like she she frames it that if things were going well, there'd be less migration which I don't think is true. I mean, what do you think, Michael? No, it's the same. I mean, she's using the language of international elites. That's the, the next paragraph on, on that speech, right? There's, there's no question here that May has co-opted um, an anti-establishment language and can see that that's what's needed. Um, I suppose what I find interesting within all this is how that message resonates with the Labour Party and, and that kind of relationship there. I, this anti-establishment politics coming from Theresa May, who is the establishment, like, in no uncertain terms, and the way that... Um, I mean, she's one of the most, I mean, suc- politically successful yeah. Home Secretaries in living memory, so for her to position herself as a as an outsider to this is galling. She's a, not, but not, not only is she managing to try and push herself forward as an outsider, although she lasted more than a term in Parliament as Home Office, as Home uh, Secretary, which is, as you say, almost unheard of, she was also responsible for immigration. Like, that was her um, remit while she was in the Home Office, was yeah. was to, inverted commas, to, to deliver those um, completely unrealistic and, uh, like, uh, controls on immigration and yet she's coming up now six years later from her the start of her time there and is able to not only play herself as the um, the outsider this anti-establishment figure but one who can finally take control of immigration but she's she's um, she's diagnosing real problems and offering up the wrong solution like it's true that communities have gone into the decline there are industries where wages um, have decreased there are industries where casualization has become the norm there are people being laid off and replaced by temps all of these things are true um what's not true is that the answer is cutting immigration the answer is like stronger employment rights you know building houses all, all of these things um but she's offered this kind of like easy enemy. thing is, is that she has i mean and i think this is what i'm trying to get to is that she has identified issues like house, housing shortage, shortages and wage stagnation mm. um and she is explicitly making a commitment to addressing those things through economic policy. Um, And also she'll have to in order for Brexit not to be the thing that totally ruins her political career. However, and this is the the thing that I want to get to, is that she's redrawing the lines of who is of the public and who is not of the public. Um, And one of the things that I think on the left we have failed to do is examine carefully how the political phenomenon of racism has at its basis not simply economic causes, not simply problems of scarcity, but racist causes in themselves. And what we fail to do is to look at um, xenophobia and racism as a shaper of politics. One of the other things that I thought was um, really quite striking was in Amber Rudd's speech when she was talking about uh, gender violence. She says, I'm not interested in those who use cultural difference as an excuse 
telling us that so-called honour-based violence is something not to be interfered with. This is the United Kingdom. It has an unequivocal rule of law. If you want to live here, you abide by it. So again, this is drawing lines of who is of the public and who is not. When you hold it up against Theresa May's commitment to exempt the British Armed Forces from essentially human rights law, we've got, again, a redrawing of the line of who is of the public and who is not, and who is... Who is the law and who is subject to it? But that 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 comment about um, so-called honour violence ignores the fact that the um, the kind of the strongest campaigners against it within the UK and elsewhere are from within the ethnic communities where it's most common. The idea that um, the other is kind of barbarian. And, you know, I mean, I try my best. But. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just false. It's like it's um, it, it creates a fictional homogenous other. Um, set against British people um, that just completely um, misrepresents the reality of the situation, I think. I mean, yeah, but I'd also just go that bit further and say that it's an interesting rhetorical shift that happened again and again throughout um, Amber Rudd's speech is that she would identify a problem which is found across all sections of society yeah. and with a sleight of hand make it something which is unique to communities of colour yeah. and propose um, invasive state intervention as the solution to it so you know it's no mistake that she moves from domestic violence to honour based violence mm-hmm. if someone can explain to me the difference between those two things in a way which doesn't have reference to the language of cultural or racial otherness um I'll buy you a Kit Kat. <laughs> I've got nothing. No, it's it's true. Um, and that's just, there's a long history of that with um, sexual violence. I, I mean, in um, the American South, the idea that um, black men were a threat to white women um, was sort of, you know, used as a justification for oppression, when in actual fact, um, rape of black women by um, white slave owners was so common that a large proportion of the population ended up being um, mixed ethnicity. It's... Um, is is this, yeah? Is a positioning the sort of male other as predatory and the female other as needing protection by the white man by white people is just, I mean, it's justification. It's a justification for all kinds of wars. It's just it seems it's like one of the most common racist tropes. I think. But I think there's something bigger here as well, right? Um, and I hate this term of like post-truth politics that we hear about so often. <laughs> but I think like Amber Rudd's speech was a prime example. Can you explain what post-truth politics is? Because I don't fully understand it. And neither do I. That's the problem. <laughs> but basically, that you can say like. whatever you like because it doesn't really matter anymore because people will just listen to what you say and if they like it, they'll engage with it. But it's that like new. Like I think my problem with. Um, liberal commentators saying that is like yeah sure but um, the only difference beforehand is they were telling the lies you liked like it's not, it's, I, don't think, I don't think political um, rhetoric's ever been like a sort of no I, I agree I don't think there's anything uh, distinctly new but I think that the way that we're all engaging with it now there are at least some semblance um from uh, progressive parties in the centre ground, at least, that you would stick to facts and figures. Sure, you'd spin, yeah. but you wouldn't get up on a stage and just lie when you know the world attention were on you. And this is what Amber Rudd did in her speech. That, I mean, the most significant one, as we hear every time, is that migrants are coming over here and stealing your jobs. Yep. Like, it, it's just literally untrue. But this, the, the supposed centre beforehand was economically liberal, social, socially liberal, mm. and one of the things they told us um, was that the wealth would trickle down um, and they told us that deregulating the financial sector would be good for all of us. And they 
So I, I just think they told us told us different lies, possibly like lies that were harder to spot until the financial crash happened and until that kind of house of cards collapsed. Um, but that's my point, I guess, is I, yeah. I, I, t- I totally accept what you're saying, but I think there's a distinct change we've seen from one where you'd lie about the outcomes of policy, you'd lie about your motivations, and you, you may well lie about your long-term ambitions, yeah. but at least in the, the, whatever facts, you would try and get something to back up what you were trying to say. You might spin those numbers or figures, you might spin the line. I, d- I actually really disagree. I think when it comes to race, politicians have never had a high regard for the truth and I think communities and and communities of colour have known this Mm. for a long time and I think that's why so often we've had to rely on our own media our own form of storytelling and our own political organisation because the image that we see of ourselves reflected back to us has never been one of our lived experience on this thing of post-truth politics and you know do people care about the truth or not There was a story which did not get the traction that I really thought that it ought to, which was that Theresa May faced accusations from within government that she tried to remove evidence about the positive impact of immigration on the British economy from a report which was published before the EU referendum. That's interesting. Um, And so uh, I think The Guardian broke this, and there was a six-month argument between Conservative and Liberal Democrat advisers over this study, and she deliberately... Um, tampered with it in order to um, in order to uh, present immigration as a overall negative for society. Now, no one cares about this, and why is this? And I and again, this is why we need to look at racism having yeah. its origins in racism, and not n- not just yeah. you know racism having its origins in misinformation or austerity or whatever else it is. People do not care that they are being lied to if it reinforces their worldview. And when I say people, um, I'm talking about this line that's been drawn in terms of who is of the people and who is not of the people. I think it's really important that we're we're critical of this. Um, And I think that the situation that we're in is the result of an impoverished media yeah. discourse that has failed to listen listen to you people of colour who've been saying that like this is not true. The framing of these arguments has been um, faulty from the start and we're the ones paying the price yeah. for it. Well we, we, we have a mainstream media um, that has been pushing race hate. We have newspapers that have been pushing race hate for many years but I think one of the main mistakes liberals make and people on the left make is we try and um, fight emotional narratives with facts and figures. Um, we try and say, you know, migrants are beneficial for the economy when surely it has to be migrants are people like you. We are part of the same class of people. Um, you know, they're not, we, we shouldn't have to, we don't tolerate people because they're an economic benefit. They are part of the same category. They're us. Um, they're not the enemy. Um, I mean, it just goes to show that the existence of people of colour in this society is always treated as contingent on something. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, And it's interesting to see that precarity now being extended to, say, Irish migrants who are now being told that they may not be exempt from this um, foreign workers um, bill. Similarly, there are the the fact that... um, our Polish siblings are being attacked in the street. Mm. Um, Again, we're seeing these boundaries being redrawn. So 
to refocus this back on the Tory party conference to give us something a bit more tangible to grapple with. Um, James O'Brien on LBC... We're, we're coming for you, by the way, in terms of numbers. Um, <laughs> James O'Brien on LBC uh, read an excerpt from what he said was Amber Rudd's speech and then it turned out to be from Mein Kampf. And what he said was, if you're going to have a sharp line of distinction between people born here and people who just work here, you're enacting chapter two of Mein Kampf. Strange times. And these are strange times indeed. Now, I throw this out as a question. What is the value in doing this beyond the emotional punch and, in a sense, the spectacle of holding these two things side by side, how do we translate that into active resistance and, by white people, active allyship? I think there is value in pointing these things out. And I think because this has been a slow process, this uh, under which um, the rise of um, Theresa May has been allowed to to happen and the politics she's espousing, I think for many people it, it is useful to continually highlight those distinct similarities. I think highlighting what we can call creeping fascism um, as that is important. Uh, the language is still visceral for those people who haven't necessarily been engaged, and engaged in sort of anti-fascist protests, which is generally a, a small section of the left and a small section of the right who would uh, label themselves fascists the last 20, 60, 70 years in this yeah. country, I should say. Um, so I think there is there is some benefit in pointing it out, and I think it should hopefully uh, ring true with some people. But but I'd also say that in of itself there is no value, uh, primarily because I don't think that people are that bothered by it. There's a, a new survey, I'm trying to get the numbers up today, um, a YouGov poll um, of 12 European countries that BuzzFeed have, have done in conjunction, and they found that the majority of adults in 12 European countries, including the United Kingdom, um, would, would describe themselves as having anti-immigrant, nationalist and author- authoritarian attitudes. Um, like the fringes have moved to the centre ground, right? And this, this isn't like a small survey, there's 12 thousand people, um, 48% of adults um, in Britain um, would say that they abide by these authoritarian views. So I I think that actively calling out what it is, is vital if you're going to try and counter it in any way. Uh, But but it's also offering some form of alternative, right? And and, and I think this is why I keep on harking back to immigration and everything we talk about. is because I do believe that's the fundamental premise under which is, this is being kind of the, the political battleground is now. It's around yep. who deserves what, who should be allowed here, and um, who's allowed to come in. Yep. Um, and I and I and I will not until I think the the left, and I mean the left. I'm, I'm talking here particularly about the the Labour Party as it stands. It's grappling with what the line would be on freedom of movement and on borders and immigration more generally. Uh, until the Labour Party, if they want to be able to be part of this, are going to stand up and say, actually, despite it being hugely unpopular amongst vast swathes of the population for now, we need to come up with, with a with a pro-immigration policy, one that doesn't. A tweet out during Theresa May's speech that the Tory party failed to hit their targets yeah. on caps as if that's some bad thing. One that doesn't um, see statements released by the leader's office just after Tory party conference, which says that we need to get numbers down a different way. We need to try and reduce the impact and have a fair migration policy, which harks back to the and the Brexit line coming from UKIP and the Tories, right? We need to make a positive I, argument for immigration. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, I think, um, sorry, I think the, the value of making those comparisons is to give a sense of urgency to, I guess, white people who aren't experiencing it and living it, um, who, who do think it's a problem, um, to make them realise kind of the path we're on. I think um, 
I think the problem is um, what's sorely lacking for mainstream discourse is any kind of pro-immigration argument that's not fundamentally a capitalist argument, that's not an argument based on you should accept these people because it's financially beneficial. There's no real mainstream left-wing pro-migrant argument, which is that it's not about what is... um, because if 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 you um if if your um support for mi- migrants as human beings is present present on the idea that they're economically beneficial, that means that you're letting the argument become about well, they're taking my job or they're not taking my job. We need we need an argument that's like premise on the fact that we're like human beings we're part of a class of people who work um we're part of a like you know migrant workers are being exploited um the same way as native workers are being exploited um but the like I mean, I believe that's called anti-racism, right? Yeah, it is, but it's not. That's not. But like, if you, if you look at what sort of the arguments that are in the mainstream in favour of immigration, it is just sort of like, um, well, no, we should accept them because it's like because it's financially beneficial because they're net tax contributors, not because they're people. But I mean, I mean that- I'm just going to interject and say that we're roughly half an hour through. You're listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. And my guests today are Michael Sagalov and Abby Wilkinson. We are discussing the fallout from the Conservative Party conference. Um, so far, the conversation has been dominated by migration and race. As you can imagine, because that's what dominated the content of the Tory party conference. Michael, you were going to say something. Yeah, and this is why I think we do need to start speaking uh, about what a positive case for immigration looks like, because it's no easy thing. No progressive movement uh, in Europe or in America have been able to, to make this argument since we've seen sort of the rise of the left, I suppose, or progressive social movements in the last few years, is that on a unilateral basis, it's very difficult to make an argument for anything other than... A um, migration within the confines of capitalism, right? It's very difficult to come out and say that we should do anything other than allow people to come here if they are a net contributor to this society. Because on a unilateral basis, you then come up to a stump as well. Do we just open the border tomorrow? Um, now, personally, yes, in favour, but it's not going to win any votes. And actually, it throws up very difficult logistical questions if you're going to try and implement that to go beyond a theoretical um ideal to one that can actually function as a policy. I, I mean, the thing is, is that once upon a time it did function as a policy, right? And this is the thing that I think, um, again, I think I'm drawing on a conversation which I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, is that the restrictions on freedom of movement, by which I mean bureaucratic restrictions, the hoops that you have to jump through, were not always here. There was an acknowledgement that because of colonialism, because of a British and more broadly European presence in other countries where, you know, they took all our stuff and, you know... um, How do I say this without swearing? (laughs) I don't. I move on. Um, (laughs) That we would come and fill labour shortages Mm. and live here, right? This idea that we are bound by pragmatism and that these... Um, limitations on our politics similarly to the limitations on our movement are natural things these are facts that we just have to find a way around I think um, allows the fact that they're as historically contingent as anything else I think the second thing is that we're talking about how do we get this to win votes And I guess this is what I mean by making these interjections to do with anti-racism. Now, obviously, anti-racism is not homogenous. There's a vast difference between, say, your 
Trevor Phillipses of the world and you know you're like seven ended right like you know there's there's a anti-racism which says that it's about participating in fundamentally racist institutions and there's an anti-racism that says no we must dismantle them and I think you can guess what side I fall on Um, right but in the short term I'm sorry in the short term we are not going to do that but the point I was making about votes was this is that electoral politics consistently sells out people of colour right um, elections are like the idea of the centre, right? It's not a case of like the fringes have moved to the centre. It's actually the centre is moving ever rightwards, right? Um, what that means is that people of colour are being sold out time and again. Uh, the working class is racialized as white, no matter that austerity policies hit communities of colour twice as hard as it did white people. Um, you know, this idea of the disaffected white working class need a protest vote and it's up to Labour, the Conservatives and UKIP to tussle over who that gets to be. Where's our protest vote? I, I think I think a problem is like on the left we can um, make the mistake of thinking we're defending a sort of utopian radical concept of freedom of movement and um, because people should have the right to be where they want and actually end up defending. Um, the free free labour market within the EU, which is actually quite a different thing. First of all, it's obviously it's just, it discriminates because it discriminates between people inside and outside the EU. Um, beyond that, it's, it's yes, like people should people should have the freedom to move. We can say that, but people should also have the freedom to not have to move. And when, when we're talking about um, workers leaving family behind in other countries and um, coming and living in very cramped accommodation to send money home, hundreds of miles from their families, and even within the UK, when we're talking about people moving down from northern cities where their support networks and their friends are and where they want to be because it's only London they can get work. I mean, like. Um, is that is that a goal? Is 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 like who who is actually benefiting from freedom of movement as it actually exists, rather than the abstract principle of it? Because as far as I can see, it's um, predominantly. I'm not I'm not saying migrants don't benefit ever, but it's predominantly um, in the service of capital. Um, it's predominantly labour. It, um, it's a movement of labour rather than the, you know the movement of people and. It reminds me of the Norman Tebbit, um, you know, get on your bike quote. You know, if you can't find work where you are, um, you should have to you should have to move anywhere it is. What like shouldn't our goals for the EU and more broadly, shouldn't our goals be that people you know, it should be possible to stay or move and have a good standard of living, like globally and na- like within the UK. Like so are are we not sort of like limiting our horizons? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Abby and I think that's my kind of what I would say to to you, Ash, really, is that it, I'm not suggesting for a second here that the, the language around um, elections and votes are uh, the basis for a utopian idea of, of how borders function in 2017, if we can get on this quickly. The point I'm trying, trying to make, I suppose, is that uh, as we stand today, for an open border in its, I guess, utopian sense, how I would see it, like anyone going the like without any concerns to happen, there will need to be a, a reassessment and a readjustment of global inequality. Like, that's just the nature of how it works. The same to stop people moving from, from, from Barnsley to London for work. There'll need to be a serious readjustment of where wealth lies and where, where capital is. Right? That, that's a given. Um, so in the short term, we certainly need to change the debate around migration from being um, less about um, our borders and numbers here, but to looking at the, the core facets of why people are coming here in the first place like Abby says but at the same time I think there does need to be discussion like I said earlier about how we don't we make a positive case for migration 
into this country um, and I think there are steps that need to be taken because whether we like it or not the, the, the current government and the groups the right of them who make up the seeming to this research and most voting polling intentions the majority of the voting population in this country obviously people who can vote is a distinct category of people with some relative privilege um, but those people are, are seeing immigration as the core issue and, and I think what I would say is there's a two-step argue a two-step process to this and the first one is to to sort of bring us back to the point where we at least have an understanding that the current levels of migration to this country are a, a positive thing both economically and socially because there there is very little evidence um to say it isn't like let's look in london for instance right someone like islington which has i think 40 or 50 percent child poverty rates and my, my stats aren't up and my computers died um, but at the same time there the, the vote remain camp was was at one of its highest and that's not just because those people who could vote in that part of um, London who were non-white did vote the, the majority the percentage of people white people who voted native born white Londoners in Islington for instance was much higher who voted remain than in many uh, many white um, many kind of demographics of white people outside of, of London. Um, so it's this is what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that the the issue around immigration isn't one of reality. It's one of, of fear mongering. Yeah. We, we know this time and time again. So if we can convince people that the current levels of immigration to this country, as they've stood for the last 10, 15 years, has been a positive thing, mm. which I think is a, a difficult argument to make at this point because you've got left, right and centre people telling, not right and centre I should say, telling you that, that it's not and you've got the Labour Party and other centre-left groups who've for, for decades fueled this narrative. But once we get to that stage, I think I think it's doable, I think it's winnable, I think that the, the numbers, the facts and figures show it and it just takes some time. That's when we can start reassessing what, what borders look like, what immigration looks like. And, and, and I do think that much that pains me to say and it's I've not thought through a policy idea on this because that's not my job I think think there has to be and will be at some point some conversation around the amount of people that the UK with a pro-migration stance could physically and resources take in at one time like I think we can both agree that I'm thinking this as I speak and it's a point I've been talking about for a while but I, I think we all agree that spending on the NHS is an inherently good thing but at some points within a limited budget with limited resources you'd have to say even if you've got the, the most pro NHS um, government but, but, we've had but, but, at some point there'll be a point where you can't keep on throwing money at the NHS because there, there won't be a need for it or they won't we be should, able to take it but we should, we should note that migrant workers tend to be younger and it's actually the native population who puts more of a strain on the NHS but mm. I, I think what I, what I would say more broadly is sorry, that, no, to about, that wasn't my, my point about the NHS was entirely irrelevant it was saying in general an inherently good thing i.e. funding the NHS at some point you'd have to stop funding it for a bit and my question is does that I make mean, sense? That's why communists right so yeah. I mean like that's why I mean maybe I'm making a big assumption here but that's also why we're why I'm personally I'm critical at lo looking to like turbo Keynesianism mm. as any form of emancipatory solution to the problems of exploitation and the problems of xenophobia and racism right one of the things that I guess I'm going to throw out is like you know like you said we are going to have to address I think two things, right? One is the um, ongoing collapse of UKIP as a um, as a party, if not a political force, right? I mean, yesterday's uh, Royal yeah. Rumble, I think, oh, yes. um, was like further evidence of this. And I hope he's okay. I think he is apparently, no. I don't really care. <laughs> there is no God. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. and I've, it would be wonderful if... Uh, the 
slow, painful demise of UKIP was the result of anything other than actually its political successes, right? The success it's mm. had in shifting the Overton window way over to the yeah. right. Um, and Theresa May is a very canny political operator. She has very effectively out... Which she's done what David Cameron couldn't do, yeah. which is outflank UKIP. Yeah. Yeah. And on the other hand, we've got a Labour Party which is determined to eat itself. Um, and yet our man Jezza, like, just... He stays winning. Um, and I think let's talk about his shadow cabinet composition, okay. um, not just demographically, but p- politically, in terms of, like, is this shaping up to be the fight that we need, that we crucially need on defending the principle of freedom of movement with Diane Abbott as shadow yeah. home secretary? So we've got two things, right? Okay. So what next for the far right? And what next to the left? Can I say one, before we completely move on, I, I just wanted to say, again, I, I think it's a mistake to attach the radical emancipatory longer-term projects um, that you're talking about to the economically liberal project of the EU, which... Um, but that's not my position. Encourage, sure, but I, I think um, I think that is happening in, in the way we talk about this. Um Capshadow Cabinet, I'm like I'm like overall pretty pleased with it. I um there's a few people I really like in there. Um I love Dawn Butler, I'm glad she's gone in there. Um big fan of Clive Lewis. Um I like Rayner, although um I I, I know she's not um she has a somewhat different position on freedom of movement to me, uh, which is um it's um yeah, I mean, in terms of representation, it's better than anything um, political parties normally come up with. Um, I think it's just just good to have like a team who can potentially work together, right? Like that's a, that's progress for the Labour Party at the moment. I mean, on this point about tying uh, freedom of movement to the EU, that's certainly not my position, and that's why um, my position on the referendum was remain pending abolition. And I think another one of the developments this week, which is the EU leveraging aid to Afghanistan against. Uh, agreement to be able to deport unlimited numbers of Afghan refugees, despite the Mm. fact that Afghanistan is increasingly unsafe, um, is evidence that the the EU has never been a bastion of freedom of movement, but freedom of capital. It just so happens that the Lexit position of this opportunity to argue for the... um, I mean, I, th- I think we actually need to stop calling it a utopian position on freedom of movement. It's actually a pragmatic one. When you look at the numbers of displaced people in the world, it is a pragmatic one to say that we must that we must look to the most uh, economically and environmentally resilient countries to start absorbing those numbers. So I don't think it's yeah. utopian at all. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and I, my, my point is as much that it's is unrealistic and that it's not the ideal and that it's not even achievable. And I think in the very near future, and I say that in respect to the next 100 years, we'll come to that point anyhow because that's the direction we we're going to. we will need to but Ash can I ask you a question is that alright uh, I'm an Aries um, <laughs> <laughs> do you think that the, the, the Labour party now the party line coming out from the cabinet should be one of defending freedom of movement within the European Union I think that I mean this is one that you really need Aaron and James for because my <laughs> native position as it were is one of um, terminal disinterest in Labour Party politics. You brought them up, I didn't. Um, I did. And I think that the Labour Party position should be one of setting the agenda on why there has to be 
a even more emancipatory model, a, a truly emancipatory model of freedom of movement that does not take the EU as its starting point, that does look at the fact that the EU relies on, um, you know, in many ways similarly to Australia, on offshore detention facilities in, say, Kenya and, say, Libya, um, and has blood in its hands in um, constructing the borders of Fortress Europe. If I saw a Labour Party that was making those arguments, I would be quite tempted to join it. No, but, but that, that, that avoided the question, and, I, and, I, and I, I appreciate that it's not a question I want to answer, but the Labour Party will have to take a line on freedom of movement within Europe. Now, whatever else that comes with politically, whatever other lines they take, people are asking, are you for freedom of movement? Are you against it? I, and what would you say? What, what should the Labour Party in your No, I mean, so, I mean, that's like a critical position of saying that, and I also defend the principle of EU freedom of movement, right? But, like true freedom of movement within the EU, there has been talk of restricting Schengen to purely EU nationals, right, which is something that's informally been going on. So again, this is why I don't do party politics, <laughs> right? Um, that's why I think it's important to take this critical position and say that you cannot abstract this question of EU freedom of movement from these wider questions of fortress Europe. Um, um, yeah, but right? I, I guess what I would say is if you um, if you defend the economic project of the EU and you I don't think that's um you know there's this project that has had um, a negative impact on in some ways on workers across the continent um then you sort of limit your opportunity to make the actual arguments you're making now because they see you as defending something that already exists that they don't see as benefiting for them when the actual argument you want to make is I don't like. I don't want to. Def how things are is not how I want things to be. Um, but I think as long as they think you're defending the status quo, they're not going to give you a hearing. Um, anyway, we've got roughly 15 minutes left. You're listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, and we are joined by Abby Wilkinson and Michael Segalov. Um, I'm in full agreement with you, um, but that's why my position, if it's being interpreted as a defence of the EU, is a gross misrepresentation. Really, I mean, it's just not. I, didn't campaign for Remain. I voted Remain because I saw who was on the other side. Yep. They were, to me, looked like racists carved out of Stilton and I decided I did not like them. Um, I think the fact that... Um, I think that this actually ignores many of the political articulations that have come from radical people of colour in the lead-up to this referendum, which was commentators, writers, authors and activists coming out and saying neither one of these positions is an anti-racist one. Mm -hmm. mm. It's no mistake that you saw the real explosion of Black Lives Matter UK happen post-referendum that said that, yeah, um, the Labour Party might make some noises in the right direction, but this is, does not represent our interests or our needs in this form of politics. Um, we're not going to um, make a case for freedom of movement as it is defined by the EU but a case for freedom of movement which is predicated on decolonial praxis mm -hmm. um, I actually think that the way that this is being framed represents the failure to listen to those radical voices of colour and is a repetition of that uh, yeah no, I, I don't. I think that's legitimate criticism. But I still want to come back to, and I know you don't want me to, sort of parliamentary politics in the short term. I mean, it's surprising for me to say that because a year and a bit ago I'd have been saying, why on earth are we talking about the Labour Party? But both because of what's happened with the Labour leadership and also because it feels to me now more than ever that actually 
solutions that can implement short-term change. That's why I voted in the general election in 2015. It wasn't because I was particularly supportive of the candidate I was voting for, because I was genuinely petrified of the impact on individual people's lives if someone slightly worse got into power, mm -hmm. i.e. If, if Labour had got in, I don't think under Miliband they'd been hugely better, but at least been, That's I a think, difference. better than the, the Tories. So, and I want to come back to immigration because it has been the discussion that's, that's kept this alive. And, and I think we need to think about how over the next, well, hopefully four years, but possibly much shorter time till the next general election, that we uh, curate a narrative around immigration that is A, positive, um, but B, resonates with people. Like, we just accepted that the reason UKIP have become defunct isn't because they're inherently despised by society is because the Conservative Party in government have filled their vacuum like rumour going around that Stephen Wolfe before he got knocked out on the metal bar was doing so because he was contemplating joining the Tories like this is nothing this 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 is disconcerting and I think for us to to kind of resolutely disengage with the discussion around what the Labour Party needs to be doing certainly a Labour Party under your man Jez um, needs needs to be discussed so I, I want us to if we have time to really talk about what that looks like like not just in terms of saying the numbers make it look good or saying we need to make the social case immigration, but what does that actually mean in real mm. terms? What, is, what does it mean to go out and do that? What do you reckon? I think um, I'm the boring party political person here who's always thought that the most re um, realistic vehicle for short and medium term change is the party that has lots of MPs in Parliament already. I, I think it has to be done through Labour. I... But it's, I think it's, it's... What does that mean? How do we speak to voters now? After 15 years, more than 15 years, like after... Like, I almost swore. After um, after a long history of racism and after um, particularly strong sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric that's been ramped up recently after newspapers and politicians have blamed immigrants for all kinds of economic problems that are very real, you know, the decline of certain communities, that unemployment, housing issues... How do we like? How do we get them to listen to us? If we're like, oh no, that's not true. Actually, like, how how do, like? I think we have to be realistic about the way that you change policy in the UK is through Parliament. We're not on the brink of a revolution. Um, so what? How do we? How do we persuade people to let us do things? Like, it's, I think you can't. Like, it's. I know what you mean. It's, it's like not the most fun thing to think about, but I think that's the issue's pressing. Like, we can't talk about what we're going to do in fifty years. Like. Well, it's what even less now? fun to live, right? So the 58% spike in reported racist hate crimes has been shown is here to stay. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk pragmatism. People of colour, whether they're migrants or not, in this country are scared. White migrants in this country mm -hmm. are scared. Mm -hmm. um, it's no shock that the kind of um, emotional affect underpinning many of the like left liberal editorials after the Tory um, party conference is one of fear. This idea of um, be realistic, how do, how do we um, address the concerns of voters? Well, brown people vote too mm -hmm. and have concerns. So here's a question for both of you. How are you going to address that through um, the pragmatic vehicle of electoral politics? I, I certainly don't think that uh, structural change just comes through Parliament and that's not a line I would take. Uh, I think at the moment when we're at a stage where, as I said before, I feel so desperate and we have a dis 
distinct characteristic of what this Labour Party could be that I think it's interesting to engage with. But I certainly wouldn't say that is the primary vehicle through which anything will happen. And throughout history, time and time again, we've seen social change doesn't come through asking nicely or through joining the Labour Party, even if it's a Labour who then implements such changes. But there are distinct problems we're facing because it's, of course, brown people, black people, white people vote different races, different um, ethnicities and, and different nationalities where they can. But we also have to appreciate that government policy is what dictates what happens. And actually, government policy now is getting disconcertingly, if it wasn't before, like fascist. Um, and at some point within that, we need to say, how do we uh, utilise whatever vehicles we have to, to stop this onset? Yeah. And I think there's distinct issues that I want to just throw out there, not necessarily that we discuss now, but the first one being, like, if we do see the Labour Party in the short term as being able to engage with that, of course, with pressure coming from outside of that party, um, as like Black Lives Matter's prime example does and should continue doing, as far as I'm concerned, not that it matters what I think on that. Um, I think we need to appreciate that, uh, firstly, Labour's voting base right now is more polarised than ever. It's young, um, most university educated, city living, um, left leaners. Um, and then it's like the traditional heartlands in, in, in the north um, and in the, in the Midlands places where views on immigration are distinctly different like uh, so polarized uh, a lot of the time uh, the second one being is uh, and you touched on earlier on uh, historical racism historical modern racism in this country the last 30 40 years there's something also quite alarming here as to how high levels of xenophobia actually come in parts of the uk where there are very low levels of migrants living there um, you look at somewhere like Hackney where the National Front were really big in the 80s uh, they were big but there was a large migrant community there now you go to Hackney that community settled and, and thankfully the National Front are nowhere to be seen uh, but now you go to places um, certainly let's, let's take in Clacton and around in, in Kent where the some of the highest levels of anti-migrant sentiment the highest levels of vote leave and there's a very small immigrant population there um, and those two things provide distinct challenges for any of us who are interested in really tackling this um, we can do whatever we want about activism and campaigning and it's we can do whatever we want to try and shift the political discourse that's discussed in the press by by taking action but actually there are two problems until we find some form of solution for we're going to struggle to find a short-term uh, yeah fix um for me it's class politics it's um, class politics, it's the union movement, it's anti-elite politics, and it's challenging this idea that working class means white working class. It's emphasising um, that actually immigrants, um, non-white native-born people, white native-born people have shared interests as part of a social class. Um, they, you know, they, like as workers are exploited by capital, and um, that. That's like it's like it's, it's like a, it's a more inclusive version of anti elitism. It's like no, like that's not the enemy. The enemy's up there. The enemy's your boss. <laughs> like, like the enemy's um, is not other workers. Because um, that's 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 like that's and that's a uniting inclusive identity. Class should be. I, I'm, I agree that um, class solidarity can form the basis of a. Um, an effective resistance to capitalist exploitation. However, one of the things that we can't get away from is that whiteness confers certain material privileges, right? And I'm not talking about like white privilege being like you go and you see Kate Moss on the cover of Vogue and you know Lupita gets it once a year or whatever. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about that kind of privilege. I'm talking about you are 
better insulated from the worst effects of austerity, you are m- more likely to have access to good education, healthcare, more and likely, housing. More likely, but not, not, not universally. I'm, I'm, I mean, that's not the point that I'm making, yeah. and I think like you'd be a hard push to interpret it that way. But what it is saying is that we cannot simply reduce the existence of racism to political misdirection. There's a reason why it exists, and that reason is that it facilitates the functioning of capitalism, again, not just by misdirection, but is part and parcel of class formation. Right, we've got roughly five minutes left, so I'm going to leave it to you two to um, offer up some closing comments. Uh, Just on on that point, I'd say that you can acknowledge that within the system, um, certain groups um, in this sort of broad class of oppressed people have privileges over other groups and still kind of try and make the point that all of those people would be better off if we smash the system all together. It's like, you know, it's divide and rule sort of politics, I think. Um, and I, I'm certainly not saying that we should ignore the, you know, white, the benefits of white privilege amongst working class people. But I think that all working class people, even working class people with white privilege, um, would benefit from inclusive class politics. I want to sound like a broken record and hop back to, to immigration again. It's... Uh... I suppose what, what, what sticks in my mind still from this discussion and, and one that I still don't feel anyone really offered up a solution to and I don't blame myself or you two I've, I've asked many people <laughs> this question over the last few weeks and will continue to do so going forward is that I, I'm still failing to see how anything that's been discussed around a um, kind of the left or positive takes on migration is going to have any form of resonance um, outside of our communities at the moment and that's disconcerting it's alarming and I think it's statistics like the, the BuzzFeed YouGov stuff today that really hits me as to how far gone we are um, and I think there needs to be some discussion uh, around how we make a positive case for migration um, not one that's just not one that's just framed as we've said around, around number stats and figures one that really sinks to an internationalist outlook I think that's where we probably fall down and I think what Asha said and what Abby said to some extent uh, backs this up is that everything we do around migration even the positive spins even the positive spins away from numbers and stats and figures and the economy come down to a localised outlook on, on how it can be good for our communities good for us on a human level but actually the, the real basis of any serious um, positive discussion around migration has to be about, as you said before, when it looks at global inequality, it looks at race within that, looks at gender within that, but ultimately looks at how there is mass inequality across borders um, that is the driver of, of how this happens. And I just feel like at the moment there's no one in the mainstream pushing that forward as, as, the, as the narrative around migration. And, and until we do that, we'll continually find ourselves on the back foot pandering to the right. I mean, one of the things I guess I'd like to give a little shout out to is the um, ABC Schools Project. So a project of non-compliance with um, schools asking for mm. uh, nationality data from, uh, you know, from parents um, of non-white children in general. Um, because, yeah, white British parents have been asked to ignore these circulars. And I think I look at that and I feel the creeping sensation of something that could be hope I just haven't experienced that for a really long time so I'm not really sure what it feels like anymore um, because it it emphasises the fact that um, we do not lead separate lives white people do not lead separate lives from people of colour um, racism functions because white people can get away with seeing people of colour as something other than friends, neighbours, family members. I mean, come on, this isn't the 1950s. Um, And that we're beset on all sides by images of 
the person of colour as other. And so I think local projects like that, um, which take the momentum from like the anti-establishment position away from the right and makes a, a left-wing project, um, I think is something that, uh, yeah, I guess um, I think is worth dedicating some time and some energy to. Any final comments, Abby? Um, no, I agree. Okay, so, I mean, I guess we're a little early, but we'll wrap up there. Um, thanks so much for listening. Um, it's been Navarro FM. We'll be back, same time, same place, and catch you next time. Bye. Navarro FM is brought to you by Navarro Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarromedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.